0: There's a certain amount of predictability to it that we find comforting right i mean for the same reason (laughs) applebee's exists right (laughs) and and pumpkin spice lattes exist right we want they cater to our our natural desire for the predictable and familiar and rather than rather than challenging us intellectually or conceptually
1: yeah it's the banality (laughs) of banal
0: yeah yeah like (laughs) Like when La La Land came out, a lot of people in the jazz world were calling it pumpkin spice latte jazz. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, we are we are live
1: after like what seems like 90 minutes of technical difficulties.
0: <laughs>
1: well, actually, it was like 20 minutes of te- technical difficulties and about 70 minutes of just talking nonsense. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, yeah. Murphy's Law, right? Anything that can go wrong will. Yeah, yeah, totally. This this is what? This is episode ten, but not no, this is episode nine, but we're both looking at recording files that say episode ten, right? Yeah,
1: this this is episode this is this will be what is known as episode nine to you the listener, but it is episode ten on our end. Um though I think what we'll what we're gonna end up doing is make a folder called episode ten and then in parentheses, but really nine, which seems to be what we do here. We have, we have files that say like episode four, but really five, episode five, but really six. There's, there's so much, there's so much of my life that I'm just putting off till a later point when I can afford a personal assistant and, uh, you know, fixing the metadata for impolite to listen episodes is definitely one of those things.
0: Yeah, you don't have the time or the energy. Yeah, yeah. This, this is not a
1: job. Right now. This is not a job for present Shreeder. This is a job for future Shreeder, who can afford to hire someone else to do it. <laughs> we should start with. Well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you want to um, start with that correction that we had. Oh, a while ago. I'm from Glenn Gould. Oh, I'm I'm not aware. Oh, you know, right, Glenn this, Gould. No, we, we had a. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah, we we. We got, it. we got corrected by the ghost of Glenn Gould on YouTube.
0: Yeah, the great Canadian pianist who died, what, he died in the 80s? Is that right? I think 81.
1: 80s? I think, yeah, 1981.
0: 81. Okay, but yeah, but yeah. there's a, well, so we have a YouTube channel, right, where we upload segments of our episodes. And the segment when we were talking about Glenn Gould's recording techniques for, for the piano version of Beethoven's sixth symphony the pastoral yeah like within what was it an hour or minutes of you uploading that, someone by the name of, of Glenn Gould commented and corrected us.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had just uploaded this video. Um, yeah, so we we were. We, I think I was talking about how the the recording studio offered options to Glenn Gould in terms of sound that the concert that the concert hall could never offer him. So you know he he made this like pristine clear recording by um, placing the microphone in different places um, like one near the piano one in the back of the hall etc etc and he would sort of switch between these two to get like a more symphonic sound on the piano you know a lot of it is obviously that Gungold has enormous tactile control of the keyboard but mm-hmm. another part of it is, is simply that he had a he had a microphone right on the piano. He had a microphone, sort of picking up the general ambiance from the stage. He had one from the from the back of the hall that he was recording in, and he would adjust the levels accordingly. And it, the result is this: you, you don't really hear it if you're just listening to it, but the result is an astonishingly balanced recording of Beethoven six, Beethoven yeah. six Symphony done on piano. Um, yeah. So, Glenn Gould himself someone with the name of Glenn Gould uh the avatar is just a G um and just a a, a side note on on this guy um which you know I, I love him to death um because right, yeah right. Th- this this comment this correction was actually um right which helps you know which we were not <laughs> um and it's also insightful but um what I love the most is that if you go to Glenn Gould's YouTube channel, he only has two videos that are uploaded, and they're both of Andra Schiff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Hungarian pianist who also records a lot of fun. Yeah,
1: so close. Yeah, it's so far. But anyway, um, so I- I'm just going to read his, his comment, yeah. which was yeah. that Glenn Gould, so he's talking about himself, uh, Glenn Gould didn't use that microphone setup in his recording of the Beethoven 6th. He used that setup for a recording of Sibelius' three sonatinas, Opus 67, and three lyric pieces for piano, Opus 44, which released nearly 10 years after he recorded the 6th symphony, and also for a recording of Scriabin's Scriabin's two poems and piano sonata, of which the latter wasn't released until after his death. So this is very detailed. Um... (laughs) And, and, and uh, I, I asked him just for a little bit more detail, and, and he said, I'm not sure where you can find the details of, um, of, where, of like which, um, which recording setups he used for which recordings. But he said, but by listening to his recordings, you can, tell, uh, you can tell that in most of his solo recordings, the microphone is kept quite a bit closer to the piano than in most piano recordings. It creates a much thinner and clearer sound than that of what you'd hear from a typical piano recording. In the Scriabin and Sibelius recordings, these are the ones that he actually did use this microphone setup, which are all included in Gould's acoustic orchestration album. You can hear him using a wide range of distances between the microphone and the piano from right under the lid of the piano to the back of the hall. And it's really interesting to hear what distances he uses to set certain moods. There's a video of him recording and mixing the two Scriabin poems in one of Bruno Monchanson's, uh, I said that completely wrong, films about Gould if, you, if you'd like to see how it was done.
0: So, yeah, what do you think? Okay, so first of all, I am so glad this person exists. (laughs) 100%. I also just have questions, right? Does this guy just, guy or girl, just prowls around YouTube um, commenting on Glenn Gould videos? Because... Seems like it. You know, know, even though we're really big stars in the podcast world, our YouTube (laughs) channel is still pretty small. (laughs) And so... yeah. I kind of wanted to know how he found that. I mean, like it was right after you uploaded it. It was like yeah, yeah it a was like clip less than an hour. It, yeah. yeah,
1: it was less than an hour after I had uploaded it.
0: Yeah. So how he found it? Did he? Just, is he just always querying or searching for this, or has an alert? I, Must m- be. Maybe Glenn Gould just knows. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I'm just kind of dying to know how he found it. But also, really interesting points. Yeah. I mean. Uh, Glenn Gould, uh, we we touched upon this a little bit, but he was such a pioneer with, uh, with recording technology, in the same way the Beatles kind of were. Um, he saw the potential of the recording booth, or the recording studio, as opposed to the concert hall, and used that venue of the recording studio to its fullest potential, and also recording technology. I mean, this talk about mic placement around the concert hall, where you... Place mics near the piano. I, I just think that's so interesting and cool. And it's uh anyone that's recorded themselves playing, which I know you and I have, you realize how big of a world this is <laughs> when you're even playing with where you put the mic in your own apartment if you just want to record something small. It just, you can go down that rabbit hole so, so quickly. And Glenn Gould was one of the first artists, not like recording engineers, I guess, but actual artists and performers to really. To, to really um play around with that and experiment, which I think is awesome and and I'm glad Glenn Gould, the YouTube account knows all these details because that's super cool.
1: yeah yeah i think I think Glenn Gould is still one of I think he's still one of the only people who who really he makes a point that not only that not only the recording studio offers like a, like new possibilities that the concert hall can't offer. But he actually goes further and says that this is uh, this is an aesthetic value that, as a modern artist, you ought to exploit. And if you're not exploiting it, then you're not you're not realizing the full potential of your artistry as a modern human. Um, hmm. I think you know, for being someone in the late 20th century, I think that's extremely prescient. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's he was so ahead of his time. I, I don't even think. Musicians today would necessarily take that stance, but I think as, as we as we move um, forward with technology, I, I think it's, he's being increasingly vindicated, along with someone like Marshall McLuhan, um, the the Canadian media theorist, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of of uh, the medium is the message. Fame, um, I, I think I think they're both being vindicated as our technology, um, you know, just grows. I, I do want to make the point. Um, Yeah. You know, I don't know if we've talked about uh, sort of, you know, being in quotes, you know, being wrong on the Internet before. But, you know, we we are just talking and and we're going to be wrong um, a fair amount. But I I think it's helpful to to sort of parse out the the sort of different kinds of mistakes that that we could be making. You know, on the one hand, they're just sort of cosmetic mistakes. Um, like getting a date wrong or something like that. That doesn't really matter. Um, there are sort of bigger mistakes. Like I think this is a sort of second tier mistake that, that we did. Um, but I don't think it really affects my, my the point that I was trying to make, which is that uh, Gould hmm. exploited the, the studio in, in a way that, that you could never exploit the concert hall. Even if it was just the case that he had a microphone really close to the piano, um, he still right. did that. And that still resulted in a sound that is completely different than what you would hear in a hall. And without which, I don't think you could have recorded um, the sixth symphony, the Beethoven sixth mm-hmm. symphony.
0: So I think the point still stands, even if the details were wrong. No, I mean, this is one of those fun corrections, yes, right? Where yeah. it's, right. It, and, um, you know, I think, <laughs> I hope listeners will forgive us when, I mean, again, as we, uh, as we mentioned last time, we're just two dudes talking. So yeah, we don't. We don't have a Chicago style citation footnote to every comment we make. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which uh, would be a pretty dull podcast. So
1: yeah, but we will try to we will try to you know air um, the interesting corrections like this one. Um, yeah, and, and obviously you know there's the the sort of third order correction of something that we say is catastrophically wrong and completely makes our point moot. You know that's yeah. that's something that we do have to address, but I don't know that we've. If, if we've said something like that, then we haven't heard about it from listeners yet. So, um, yeah. Yeah. If you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> We're all ears. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah. So thanks to thanks to Glenn Gould for, for reaching out. It's it great to hear from the man himself. Um, yeah. You know, we, we mentioned him quite a lot on the podcast. So um, it was kind of a surreal yeah. experience to uh, get corrected by him.
0: <laughs> I, I did tell you, right, my... Um... I did tell you when i was in toronto last summer for work uh it was my first time ever in the great canadian city that is toronto and it's a really awesome city like i really enjoyed it it's really cool absolutely it's the same cool yeah it's cool in the way i think chicago is cool and they're pretty similar they're both long cities along a giant lake i don't know anyway yeah yeah um yeah really cool city but <laughs> i love when i when i got off the airplane when I got off the plane at the airport, I Ubered literally from Toronto International Airport to the Glen Gould statue in downtown Toronto. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's easily one of the most epic Uber rides I've ever taken where it just said the Glen Gould statue is my destination. And sure enough, I got off at the relatively famous, in the classical piano circle, it's pretty famous statue right in front of the cbc recording studio where he would frequent and record live on canadian radio and stuff and record even some of his earliest recordings before he recorded them in new york so yeah it was a pretty epic ride and got my picture taken there you know the whole the whole works the whole yeah works. yeah
1: we'll, we'll put it in the show notes i would love i would love yeah. to go to the to the Glenn Gould statue i'm not generally speaking a huge fan of statues i think they're kind of overrated. But
0: yeah, I think, yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, I, I suppose that's kind of a that's kind of a cliche position to hold nowadays, but, um, <laughs> but I still think you, know, of the very limited list of humans who deserve a statue, Glenn Gould is absolutely one of them. And, and I love that it's in front of the CBC studio. I think most um, most musicians, if they had a statue erected of them, it would be in front of a conservatory or in front of a concert hall. Or something like that, right. and I think it's it's obviously fitting yeah. that his is in front of the um, Canadian Broadcasting Company studio.
0: Yeah. So and it, it's right in downtown Toronto. Yeah. It's right in the middle of the skyline financial district districty feeling place. Yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not in a park. It's not in. He's buried. He's buried in a suburb of Toronto. I, I forget where. I forget where exactly. But. And there's no. Uh, and there's yeah. no
1: piano. Right.
0: No, and no he, he, it's just a bench and yeah,
1: <laughs> he, he he didn't. He at a certain point he stopped referring to himself as a pianist. Um, he really thought of himself as a as a philosopher. I think he called himself a broadcaster. Um, okay, which yeah, is true, and a writer and uh, a composer who who thinks about music via the piano, but he never mm-hmm. called himself a pianist. And I think that's also really cool. Um, agreed. Uh, yeah, agreed. it's cool that the the statue pays homage to that he's just a he, he's a broadcaster he's a yeah. broadcaster it's a statue right, of a right. man in front of the broadcasting studio exactly. Exactly. what he exactly. happens to broadcast is some of the most brilliant recordings ever done on piano but he's a broadcaster yeah. he's not
0: a pianist very good point very good point yeah yeah um no it's great i highly recommend it and it's it's right near the cn tower oh cool and you know the big iconic giant tower in toronto so it's very accessible if you're already in downtown Toronto <laughs> yeah. to see the touristy things it's right there um yeah yeah so shout shout Anyways, out to yeah. our
1: Canadian listeners by the way uh you know we, yes, uh, yes we shouted out a bunch of uh nationalities last time but we didn't shout out Canada um that's right we miss yeah. Canada yeah and we love we Canada. love Canada uh you know Gungold has pretty much been name checked in every single one of our episodes I think um <laughs> so
0: yeah yeah I know um fine country Canada is. A plus. Indeed. (laughs) Two thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah. Looking better every year. So, (laughs) Schreeder, let's talk about 20th century music in general. All right. First of all, I like how we still call it 20th century music. We, we don't have a word for it yet. It's not like romantic, <laughs> classical, Baroque. <laughs> yeah. I, I get the feeling that this whole century of music, the jury's still out. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the still jury's still out for the whole century generally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. Um, 20th century music is hard to define, right? Because it's even hard to put a word on, as we're saying. It's not like music from... 1750 or music from 1850 if i ask you if, if i say i'm going to play you a piece i was written in 1850 before i even press play you have a pretty solid idea of what that piece will probably sound like right mm-hmm. same if i played you a piece from 1750 right you have a pretty good idea of what that piece of music will probably sound like if i say i'm going to play you a piece from 1950 <laughs> a piece of music written in 1950 you have no clue it could be anything
1: yeah, it could be, maybe not 1950, but, you know, let's say 1960, it could be it could be early Beatles, it could be John yeah, Cage could, doing something for, you know, Amplified Cactus and Feather.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, it could be Elvis, it could be Big Band, it could be a film score, it could be... <laughs> yeah. So a piece that I think really encapsulates, or a composer who I actually think really encapsulates 20th century music and just the art and its progression and the way art kind of evolves and stuff is is John Cage. I was actually going to bring hmm. up John Cage even before you mentioned him. Let's talk about John Cage's probably most famous piece of music, 433.
1: Which is infamously called 420 by Glenn Gould, I think. Is it really? <laughs> yeah.
0: I think he, he made a mistake, but it's a delightful one. <laughs> so for those who don't know, John Cage's, or i It's either called 4.33 or 4 minutes, 33 seconds. Yeah, depending on your level of pedantry. All it is is 4 minutes, 33 seconds of silence. So the performers walk up on stage, sit down at a piano or with your flute shooter and sit there for about four and a half minutes, of pure silence. And the sheet music, it has the title, the composer, everything, and just a very long rest written. And that's the whole sheet music to it and it's and i believe it's in three movements actually it is it is yep yeah
1: so you do have to take a break in between movements and turn the page
0: and And what's funny is this piece of music pisses so many people off (laughs) it's hilarious (laughs) so before we talk any more about it we should put a clip here okay yeah yeah here you were saying it pisses people off yeah and at the same time it's one of i think the most important pieces of 20th century music Mm -hmm. so yeah it pisses people off um as is often the case with 20th century or modern art if you go to any modern art gallery it's usually one of two things uh are, are going on like people that don't like it clearly don't understand the joke right, if you look at works by Frank Stella or Ai Weiwei or, or Jackson Pollock. Or B, quite often, it's, it can be hard to appreciate or even understand what's going on without context, and a good museum curator will hopefully provide that for you. So with 433, I think that's a piece that's an impossible piece to talk about without, without context, all right? And so so let's rewind a little bit to earlier John Cage which I think his second most famous piece will probably be Sonatas and Interludes for a Prepared Piano. Mm -hmm. And what this piece involves is basically there's very specific instructions in the music of how to put erasers and nails and different objects in between the strings of the piano. And then you play the piano sheet music. It's a really kind of cool sounding piece, but it's what we call chance music, right? Music that no two performances are going to sound identical or no two recordings will sound identical because it's impossible for everybody to have the exact same type of eraser and put it in the same spot. And part of the resulting sound is left up to the chance of the universe and how you actually prepare the piano for this. I think with the...
1: With the 20th, with the twentieth century, I think just it is the it is the sort of end result of of uh, it is it is the it is the ending of an age of enlightenment. I think I, I think hmm. th- there have been many ages of enlightenment. Bach is a sort of holdout from the previous age, where mystery and uncertainty was kind of the standard for art and for philosophy and for science. It was kind of coming from a place of not only do we not know, but we can't possibly know. Um, and I think the music is an expression of that. I think if you look at some of the harmonic wanderings of Bach, you can really hear that as opposed to if you go forward a little bit and you sort of enter, you know, this age of enlightenment of, of man's certainty, of of man's knowledge and in science, the art and the music followed. I, I think it became very steadfast. We've used the word obvious before. Um, very logical, maybe is is a is a way of putting oh. it. Like Mo, Mozart mm. is very logical in a way that Bach is not. Um, mm-hmm. This is not to say that Bach has no logic at all, but it's just the logic is much more mysterious. It's mm. much more unfathomable. Whereas with Mozart, it's it's apparent. It's yeah. It's it's very much on on the yeah. nose. I I think that that was the sort of standard for for everything until until about the twentieth century. And I think the marvels of modern technology and science coupled with um, the the sort of uh, the atrocities of the 20th century i think obviously we're still reaping the benefits of the enlightenment but i think humanity's attitude has kind of shifted i mean at a certain point god was dead but that was fine because you know even if god was dead we had science and we had man Um, And then in the 20th century, you know, with the multiple atrocities that man had committed using science, I think God is dead, man is dead, and science is kind of dead as well. And I think the art reflects that. I think that that's partly why you get this sort of enormous fracturing. There's no unified vision of what it means to be a 20th century person um, Mm -hmm. or an artist or a musician. There's no unified 20th century sound and i think the the idea of completely logical music logical in the mozartian sense coming in 1960 or something after having you know witnessed the atrocities of of 1940 i think that would be that would be laughable and I, I, I think part of the the sort of interest in in aleatoric music in chance music and in atonality and in, in sort of expressions that, that don't make immediate obvious sense. I think it, it's part of that same attitude. I think we're we're back to, I think basically Baroque is back. I think we're back to, <laughs> we're, you know, the, the sort of self-confident uh, classical and romantic age of, of man's triumph uh, against nature and, you know, with science and all that stuff. I think we now are in a a period of humanity where we know that to be false. Like we've been mm. proven completely and utterly wrong on on that matter, because we've just done things to ourselves and to civilization that is unforgettable and atrocious. Um, and I, I think it's interesting how the music reflects that. I think someone like John Cage is a is a perfect example of that. Example of that.
0: What I think John Cage did, and and what I think a lot of these twentieth-century composers did, was they went back to basics and so again like broke his back (laughs) right so going back to basics what i really mean is yeah go back to the fundamentals so chance music or this piece for prepared piano right where no two performances of it are are the same i mean they'll be similar but they'll be also very different because no every time you set up the piano with all these erasers between between the strings you're not going to do it the same way twice okay so no two performances of this piece are the same but it's not true with every performance of every piece (laughs) ever Mm -hmm. no i mean what we love about yeah right well i mean but mathematically it's not possible to play the two piece a piece identical twice right it's Mm -hmm. it's and that's part of the very the oneness of music is part of the beauty of it right that when you even if you hear a very tonal piece again like mozart's 40th symphony even if you hear the same orchestra play twice right the smallest things are going to be different the tempo might be slightly different the there might be a slight you know out of tuneness here or there so it's just the oneness of music it's not like a, a painting that just sits there and if you turn your head and look back at it it'll be the same so i think what John Cage was trying to do, one of the many things he was trying to do, was amplify these truths about music that maybe we had forgotten about.
1: Hmm. I think that's a really good point, point. and I think it's it's true. I mean, it's true about four thirty three as well. I mean, it's not yeah. it's not really four minutes and thirty three seconds of silence. It's it's four minutes and thirty three seconds of of um, atmosphere. Right. 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 Um, you know, there there is music all around you, there's music in the traffic, there's music in, in the sort of, uh, in, the, in the noises, in the quotidian noises of your daily life. There, there is music everywhere. It just happens to be that what we call music is, is one such systemat- systematization of it. Um, yeah. I, I think John Cage sort of, uh, he rebelled against that with like every bone in his body.
2: When I hear what we call music, it seems to me that someone is talking, and talking about his feelings or about his uh, ideas of relationships. But when I hear uh, traffic, the sound of traffic, here on 6th Avenue, for instance, I don't have the feeling that anyone is talking. I have the feeling that uh, sound is acting. And I love, the activity of sound what it does is it gets uh, louder and quieter and it gets higher and lower and it gets longer and shorter it does all those things which i've i'm completely satisfied with that i don't need sound to talk to me we don't see much difference between time and space i think
1: if i may actually just throw in a quick anecdote here um John Cage studied for a bit with Arnold Schoenberg. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And um and I think Arnold Schoenberg said something something like you'll never be a composer because you have no ear for harmony. Um and John Cage mm. basically said, "Well, I'm going to keep banging my head against that wall." And and you know, he he did. Like he he completely he ended up rejecting harmony in a more total way than Arnold Schoenberg, you know, who took issue with conventional tonality and then invented a new centering, you know, with the 12-tone mm-hmm. system. But there was still yeah. a center there. It was still recognizably music. Right. John Cage just took again the logical next step and just said, I'm not even playing this game. I'm not even playing this game that you call music and I will find the music of a cactus and yeah. and bring it to you.
0: <laughs> right. Right. And with 433, it's funny, you know, we've both been to performances of it or heard it perform live it's hilarious, right? Because it's four and a half minutes of silence. But yeah, we all know it's not really silent. You hear people shuffling around in their seat. You hear the ventilation and the AC unit above the theater. You hear all the sounds that you probably didn't notice beforehand. And again, what's kind of beautiful, amplifying these points about music, as we were saying, the performance you heard of 433 is the first time that performance had ever taken place like no one had ever heard that exact same performance ever before and no one will ever hear it ever again Mm -hmm. right it's a very once-ness thing and also i think it's important to put 433 into historical context because it was written i believe the 1940s Mm -hmm. and it was it's funny like silence and meditation and mindfulness had long been a staple of eastern cultures but in the west it was still very new and it was you know especially after world war ii was a lot of japanese immigration to the united states and so with that came a lot of this new um zen like cultural elements that americans were starting to explore and think were interesting so i think what john cage was also doing he wanted us to really stop and listen Mm -hmm. to really stop and listen which not sit back and enjoy and which is fine and dandy we all love a good Mozart concert (laughs) but to actually consciously listen to the sounds around you and to also make the point that the sounds that aren't organized music in organized notes are also worth listening to yeah
1: John Cage was was you know a, a lot of the a lot of the Chance and his chance music was was brought about by um, I Ching operations, which is a, a sort of ancient Chinese method. I think. Um, oh right! Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think I have a book around here somewhere it's about like, I Ching
0: operations. It's like a magic eight ball to the nth degree. Like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
1: Um, he was he was a Zen Buddhist himself. Okay. Um, and he was a big proponent of the sometimes thrown around cliche that has a lot of truth to it, that if you find something boring, do it for two minutes. Um, if you still find it boring, boring, do it for four minutes, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. until you're doing it for you know, hours and hours, and, and then you won't find it boring anymore. Um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you think something is like silence, if you think just sort of sitting around in your apartment and hearing the ambient noise of the world, if you think that's boring, keep doing it and eventually you'll find that there's infinite beauty and music to be had in what you have previously thought is silence it doesn't take that long to get there and in, in fact i mean right four minutes 33 seconds is actually longer than you need to get to that point uh, i think that's that's um you know maybe one of his points
0: yeah yeah no of course of course and john cage too wasn't he he was a avid mushroom and fungus collector yeah
1: he was a, he was a <laughs> he was a fairly successful amateur mycologist
0: um i think that, that's the greatest fact about Don cage yeah yeah
1: i mean he would be you know he would be uh at these sort of music seminars and like all great artists he didn't give a damn about these uh <laughs> careerist conference attendees and he would just right. be off doing his own thing looking for mushrooms well, all
0: the boring people congregated elsewhere talking about his music. <laughs> I've heard heard that too. Where I mean, there are numerous occasions where people thought he was running late for a guest lecture, and they found him like in the front garden, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, looking at all these mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I don't. I don't actually know if he was into you know the mushrooms of the those mushrooms. <laughs> uh, yeah, mu- mushrooms of the magical variety. But I wouldn't put it past him. I'm sure he went on a good magical mystery tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really what he was doing when he was late for the lecture. Yeah. Um, no, but yeah, I think I think that's another part of the um, the beauty of of John Cage and the complete relevance of him. I, I think hmm. uh, he is one of the most important musicians of our time. I mean, he's dead, yeah. but. I think his, yeah, his, no. his music is is relevant for this entire age that we live in, I think. I mean, there's so many things that that um, that he really highlights that I think are, are really important. And and one of them, you've sort of said this already, but um, the sort of ep- the the um, the transient nature of of like of everything is a sort of very 20, 20th century and 21st century um, philosophy, I think it's like it's like a it's a 20th slash it's like a modern look on life um is Mm -hmm. is to sort of embrace the the transient nature of it Mm, um sure yeah i think previous um eras were more concerned with um sort of building lasting edifices to to humanity you know um and i think for many reasons that i'm sure people who are smarter than i am have written papers about um, the culture seems to be trending more towards transience. I mean to take something that's completely a a, a vulgar example, a vulgar in the Latinate sense, um, take something like Snapchat. Hmm. you know why is that as popular as it is? Um, uh, yeah right, you know, so. it's it's there's something there that's that's also the the same as um, John Cage's aleatoric music it's It's something to do with uh, this, this sort of relatively new embrace of of um, uncertainty, of transience um, in, in our lives yeah. that I don't think it was there, uh, you know, 200 years ago. I think it was there maybe 300, 400 years ago. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, mean, I think philosophies go in and out of fashion. And I think there's a lot more that's relevant now from the Renaissance and the Baroque, early Baroque period than in the classical and romantic periods.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, I think John Cage is as relevant as ever. Um, um, yeah you look at all these meditation apps that are yeah. <laughs> that, that i mean right it's like ah i don't know it's just very very cagey and um by the way we saying?
1: should we should put a picture in the show notes of john cage and his cat oh really um, yeah john cage just had the, the cutest cat in the world um and there's some really great pictures of him with, <laughs> with his cat um in his like new york apartment um, you know if
0: his cat had a name
1: um let's find out i'm sure he did or she, I don't know. It'd be Losa. Even better if it didn't. Oh. No. Yeah. L O S A. I don't know what I don't know what that means. Losa, Losa? Losa. Hmm. It means slab in Spanish,
0: apparently. Like yeah. stone. Locrian octaves. <laughs> synch- synchronizing. Atonality. Aton- yeah, nice. No, I think that's 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 great. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um I-, I also want to shout out my favorite. John Cage piece Um Let's hear it. which is uh, it's called Roratorio Roratorio um, and I think it's something the subtitle is something like An Irish Circus on Finnegan's Wake um, <laughs> so he he takes this is an, an, another example of chance music and actually in the score he makes it so that you can do this with any novel you want but he happened to do it with Finnegan's Wake which is a novel by James Joyce the Irish author James Joyce
0: and um, it's a great bar here in San Francisco. Hell yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I really want to go there.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great.
1: Yeah, when, when I visit, we'll, we'll, hit that, we'll hit Finnegan's
0: Wake Up. <laughs> hell yeah. After um, it reopens, people, don't go out to bars anymore. Right, yeah. <laughs> 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 Public uh, service announcement.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, no one cares. We've had like 46 different outbreaks since UW opened. And like, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, what yeah, was I I'm saying? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so Finnegan's Wake, it's a famously unreadable novel that's basically not even in English. But um, mm-hmm. John Cage, uh, he, he wrote, um, he wrote a, a mesostic poem on, like, using Finnegan's Wake, hmm. which is basically like an acrostic poem, except the, the, you know how in an acrostic poem, like, the first letter spells something? In a mesostic, it's like the middle letter spells something. So oh, gotcha, okay. He went through Finnegan's Wake and took every word that had a middle letter of James Joyce, like the word, the actual letters in James Joyce, um, yeah. and wrote a mesostic poem based on that. And then um, he took whatever, like wherever that word was in the novel, he actually went to that place in real life and took like 10 seconds of ambient um, sound from there. Oh, interesting. Um, and, like, a lot of them are, like, pubs, so there's, like, live music playing in pubs um, mm. in the background where he's, like, taking a little audio snippet from from where he's referencing it, and then it, it all just it gets put together into this crazy piece that is, you know, uh, at once John Cage reading this poem that he wrote along with sort of noises from pubs all across <laughs> Ireland um, and sort of, you know, ri- riversides and... Country noises it's, um, its its really an interesting piece.
2: Interesting. Okay.
0: No, I'm gonna actually go listen to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I listen to it all the time when I'm practicing. I find because it's—it's really—it's just cacophony at a certain point, point. Um, and I find that. Um, I think Glenn. I got the idea from Glenn Gould. But um, having something in the background while, while you practice that's like very loud and cacophonous, so that you can't really hear yourself, really helps you because mm-hmm. then you start to learn to develop a um, tactile understanding of your instrument. So oh, you, you yeah. So you stop trying to you stop trying to think about how uh, how it sounds when you play well. You start thinking more about how it feels when you're playing well. Um, that's interesting. And I think that that's much better. Um, but, oh, that's no, yeah. really interesting. All, all credit to Glenn Gould for for
0: coming up with that technique. Did he tell you that in a YouTube comment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I'm wondering if we should deviate into Philip Glass territory. I think we can do that. I think we can bring him up. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I guess I could start by asking you, you know, one of the questions that we had going into the beginning of this project that we're doing Hmm. for this podcast. Um, Chris, why does Philip Glass sound like movie music?
0: Streeter he's written the scores for a few films so (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) that aside (laughs) oh so not those yeah uh dude I've thought about this question it's
1: yeah it may be better if I frame it in the opposite like why does some film music sound like Philip Glass like that's better there's been so many times when I'm watching a movie and there's just something putting away in the background and I think is that Philip Glass and and it's not it's just some rando um but it sounds like second-tier Philip Glass compositions
0: I think Phil Glass's music, one of the things I love about his music is uh, the sense of propulsion hmm. his music has. And I think if you look at a lot of um, the movie scenes really play pseudo-Phil Glass music. It's, yeah, them running through the woods or something. I don't know. It's like, it seems yeah, like that. Yeah. It's not It's not the end credits usually or something. It's, yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question because there is... Uh, I don't know what it is. I, I feel like there's a whole stock music category folder file in these recording studio, recording studios in Hollywood that are just Philip Glass stock music, which is just like music that sounds like Philip Glass. Well yeah, there's definitely some element of um
1: what's the what's the saying like they you know, first they hate you and then they copy you or something.
0: Yeah, right. Um, right.
1: Which, you know, it's really interesting with, with Philip Glass I think he started the... Is it called the Philip Glass Ensemble? Or is it the Philip Glass Orchestra? Yeah. I, I think that... I mean, I'm talking about the actual Philip Glass Ensemble that Philip Glass started. Yeah, I think which, it's, that's called the Philip Glass Ensemble. I, I yeah. could be
0: wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah.
1: I mean, we'll we'll, yeah. we'll show note it. But um, yeah, he started that because no one would play his music. <laughs> <laughs> is that true?
0: Yeah. I mean, when he he was a...
1: When he was a student, when he was a composition student... So yeah, if you if you listen to some of Philip Glass's juvenilia that he has since, like, rejected. You, you, you know how some composers will just say, like, oh, yeah, c- compositions before a certain date, di- like, this date, <laughs> yeah, yeah. are just not my compositions anymore.
0: Um, yeah, and, and and the composers that don't say that should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I think Mozart should disown pretty much everything that he did before his 40th symphony. Oh,
0: really? Um, I, I was going to say before his 25th, but... 20, yeah, tw- twenty-five is okay. Yeah, I mean one through twenty-four. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You'll never hear them perform live. Because, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. No, for yeah. for real. I, I should I should get in one of the one of the best disses from Mozart I've ever heard. Courtesy of Glenn Gould, um, who said that you know most people think that Mozart died too early, but I think that he actually died too late. Oh my God! <laughs> <Which is> pretty, <laughs> pretty harsh words. It's pretty harsh words. Yeah. He died. Poor he died King. at the young age of thirty-six, and quite frankly, that's thirty-five yeah. years too many for this yeah. guy. Salieri <laughs>
0: killed him. <laughs> he was murdered. Uh,
1: anyway, yeah. So, yeah. so, so Philip Glass. You know, if you look at some of his memory hold compositions, um, they actually sound like pretty run-of-the-mill um, sort of late romantic compositions. It's really off-putting mm. because it's like it's Philip Glass, but it's uh, <laughs> But it really just sounds like, I don't know, like Strauss or something. Really? Oh, yeah, funny. it's really weird. But he was, you know, when he was composing like that, he he had, um, you know, all this acclaim and accolades and grants and all this stuff yeah. and then he just decided you know this is not interesting it's not unique it's not relevant it's not what I hear um, mm-hmm. I'm composing how other people have taught me to compose not what is actually in my mind and in my heart right and then he just flipped on a dime and started writing the Philip Glass music that we now associate with Philip Glass oh, that's and interesting. it was just okay. it was just crickets he got he got nothing from anyone like the grants started going away Um, he got you know the accolades and the acclaim turned into um, like uh, just you know critics you know reviling his music and and um, just sort of laughing at it and saying this is stupid yeah and that's that's when he just was like all right fine I'm just I'm just gonna start my Philip Glass ensemble and force people to play my music because no one's gonna play it otherwise (laughs)
0: Interesting. Um, oh, I didn't know that. So, oh, yeah. Hmm.
1: And then, and you know, as is the way with things now, like you said, it, it almost seems like there's a, um, there's like a stock reel in every Hollywood studio versus like Philip Glass-esque music. And right, I bet right. I bet he would, I bet he's so annoyed by that because to have put up with, with as much as he has had to put right. up with um, for now his music to become sort of his own cliche and everyone kind of then turning around, and you know, to to go from someone who was reviled for being too new, to being reviled for being too cliche, in the space of you know thirty years must be must be a surreal experience. I don't know how he still keep. I don't know how he still puts up with it. You can only please some of the people, some of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think like an, a really interesting con- conversation is just how, how do we how do we treat the new. Like I don't I don't think mm. as a society we don't we don't have a very a good, point. good attitude towards the new. I mean you know let's just like in Ratatouille. Yeah. Um you know, Peter O'Toole's speech as as Anton Ego, you know, when he says yeah. the you know, the critics must realise that the the average piece of junk is is more useful and beautiful than than our criticism designing uh uh deigning it to be a, a piece of junk. I, I bossed yeah. it, but we'll put a clip maybe of, um, yeah. of oh, the, I, the late
0: the... Peter O'Toole, yeah.
2: But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating itself. So. But there are times when a critic truly risks something and that is in the discovery and defense of the new
1: yeah, I think that's so that's so true, and yeah I don't, I don't know it's something that's sort of always on my mind that as a society, we don't have a great um attitude towards towards things that
0: are new, hmm right yeah, yeah, yeah no, and I think um uh, no it, he says in that speech too, you know the the world is often unkind to new ideas, new artists, new creations mm. and yeah, that's not just in the music or artistic world. That's just, you know, it's part of human nature, I think, right? We again, we like Applebees. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we like going to, you know, that the, the Applebees and getting the same thing we got last time and it'll turn out exactly how you want it to. Yeah. No, that's
1: that's pretty great. If if I if I'm ever wondering why 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 is you know, John Cage's music having to put up with this or that, um, or why is Philip Glass having to put up with this or that? I'll just, I'll just remember there's Applebee's I, yeah. in any world in which Applebee's exists. That, that question should be, a, the answer should be obvious.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. It's uh, what makes Applebee's possible and Starbucks and especially Applebee's. I don't know why. <laughs> like, yeah. There's something about Applebee's. <laughs> there's something about Applebee's. I think you'll. I think you've learned by now. You have to excuse all of Streeter' nice German pronunciation on the show. <laughs> as um, yeah,
1: as as you now have immortally said, my my German is rusty. It's pretty much as rusty
0: as it could get. <laughs> as rusty as it could be. I'm yeah. sure there's a German word for it, as rusty as could be. Unheimisch yeah. leimeroch <laughs> <laughs>